open up our Bibles now to the book of Romans, chapter 2. As we continue our study through this epistle, and this morning we'll be picking up in verse 17. Romans chapter 2, beginning in verse 17. Indeed, you are called a Jew, and you rest on the law, and make your boast in God, and know his will. And approve the things that are excellent, being instructed out of the law, and are confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of babes, having the form of knowledge and truth in the law. Shall we pray together? Lord, we do, as we sang today, invite you here. We thank you that you are here, Lord, for you said where two or three are gathered together in your name, that you are in the midst, and we're grateful for that today. Speak to us now, in Jesus' name, amen. At the beginning of this second chapter of Romans, the Apostle Paul pointed out the error of the Jewish religionist reminding them that they were inexcusable because they were judging others for certain sins, and yet at the same time, they were committing those sins that they were judging. See, the Jews were extremely religious. They were proud of the fact that they had been given the law of God, which served as a code for their conduct. Yet although they possessed the law of God, they did not apply the law of God. And it didn't matter if they lived according to God's word. They felt so long as they had God's word, that was all that was necessary. On the other hand, there was another group, the Gentile moralists. They had their conscience as their guide. They developed their own way of living. Various philosophies were prevalent among them. Several of their own standards had been established concerning relative truth. The Apostle Paul, lovingly and yet straightforwardly, pointed out that both groups were in error. He began to strip away their false sense of security. They needed more than a code to live by or a conscience to follow. They needed Christ as their Savior. Paul reminded them that one day that God would judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. They were religious, but not necessarily redeemed. There is no one too bad for salvation But there are countless numbers of people who think that they are too good to be saved. And before Paul can present the message of the glorious gospel in order that his readers might understand that they can truly be justified by faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross, he seeks to bring them to this awareness that neither their religious affiliation nor their ethnic connection, 
nor their spiritual practices could save them. And what Paul writes to his Jewish brethren, specifically in this section of the letter, could be written to Christians today. That it is possible, it is possible to be religious and yet be unconverted. Donald Gray Barnhouse put it this way. He said, quote, There are those who are attached to form, to ceremony, to liturgy, religious precepts and practices, and all the attitudes that go with such attachment, and yet they're unfamiliar with the grace of God. They have ritual without redemption, works without worship, a form of service without the fear of God, and thus they come under the condemnation of God. It makes no difference what name they go by. The principle is the same. Addressing the religious Jew, Paul points out that there were several privileges that they rested their eternal security in. The first, their heritage. You'll notice in verse 17, he says, indeed, you are called a Jew. The Jewish people took great pride in their heritage. Previously, they were called Hebrews and Israelites. By the first century, the word Jew became the most common name for the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It comes from the word Judah, which means praise. One of the 12 tribes and the designation for the southern half of Solomon's kingdom after his death. But from the time of the Babylonian captivity, the whole race was referred to as the Jews. Their great heritage became the source of pride and complacency. They were God's chosen people. They were given a unique and special privilege in relationship to God. And God's intention was that they would be a light to the other nations around them. Instead, they ended up looking down on the other nations that were around them. They felt that their racial and religious heritage set them above everyone else. Sadly, this developed further into a mentality that assumed, and falsely I might add, that they were blessed as a people, not because of God's grace upon them, but because of their own inerrant goodness. During his earthly ministry, Jesus addressed this false assumption. You may recall after he healed the Roman centurion servant, the Roman centurion outside of God's covenant people, no access to necessarily the promises of God. Jesus healed this servant. He actually commended his faith. In fact, he marveled at his faith. Two times Jesus marveled in scripture, one at the unbelief of the people in his hometown of Nazareth, and he marveled at the faith of a Gentile centurion. But this is what he said in Matthew chapter 8. Assuredly, I say to you, I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel. And I say to you that many will come from the east and west. They will sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the sons of the kingdom, this is referred to some of the Jewish people, the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. There were some Gentiles who had more faith than the Jewish people that were around them. They were proud of their heritage. But secondly, they were equally proud of the fact that they had been entrusted 
with the law of God. It says you rest on the law, verse 17. The law of God, the Old Testament, containing the covenants of God, the warnings of God, the promises of God. The word rest describes finding comfort by being confident or dependent on something. Paul is saying in essence that the Jews were continually resting and confident in the law of Moses, but it was with a blind mechanical reliance. Many of the religious leaders in Jesus' day, for example, Jesus pointed out to them that they followed portions of the law. They were very meticulous about certain things. Tithing, for example. They were so meticulous that they tithed some of their own kitchen spices to the Lord. Imagine that. Going to your spice rack. I just want to be clear, Lord, what's yours and what's mine. Dumping out all of your spices and here's this for you and these are mine. Look at how religious I am. I even tithe of my spices. They also prayed at predetermined times, primarily to be seen by men. But Jesus rebuked them because while they honored God with their lips, he said, your hearts are far from me, Mark chapter 7 tells us. They knew God's commandments, but they kept those commandments that could be seen by men so they could appear outwardly spiritual. They didn't seek to please God from the heart. They were full of hypocrisy. Hypocrisy is all about maintaining the outward appearance with no regard to obedience from the heart. There were some who felt that because they had been entrusted with the law of God, that this exempted them from God's judgment. It was a false sense of security they had. Having a unique calling as a race of people, being entrusted with the law of God, that led them to spiritual arrogance. It says you boast in God. Not boasting in the greatness of God, but boasting in the greatness of themselves. Look who we are as a people. Look what we have as a people. They weren't boasting in God. They were boasting in themselves. Spiritual arrogance. It says in verse 18 that they know his will, they approve of the things that are excellent, and they're even instructed out of the law. Being instructed as they were from God's word allowed them the unique privilege of knowing God's will, knowing the difference between what was right and wrong, knowing what God required. That was a unique privilege to this nation. The privilege of being chosen by God and trusted with the law, knowing God's will, discerning between right and wrong, led them to a spiritual self-confidence. And that was then applied in their religious practices. You'll notice in verse 19 that they were confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, teachers of babes, having the form of knowledge and the truth in the law. So first of all, Paul points out, these are the privileges you have been given as a people. But those have not led you to a humility. It's actually led you to a spiritual arrogance. Meanwhile, 
These were the privileges you have, but now he highlights the practices that they were involved with, which also made them feel secure. And what were they? Well, he tells us, first of all, they felt that they were a guide to the blind. Now, when it speaks of the blind here, it's not referring to those who are physically without sight. It refers to those who are spiritually blind. They don't have access to God's law. That was entrusted to the Jewish people. And therefore, they felt that they were a guide to the blind. The Gentiles, the pagans, they were blind. They were outside of the community of faith. And to be a guide to the blind means that they were to help these people who were lost find their way. They were to bear witness to the things that they had been given, this special revelation that had been entrusted to them. But there was a problem. And the problem was that they had become, if I may say, a spiritual cul-de-sac, a self-contained holy huddle. They weren't going out into the lost world trying to be a guide to reach out to surrounding nations with the truth. They were smug, self-content in hoarding the law of God for themselves. It seems as though Paul is saying this somewhat sarcastically, prodding them when he writes that what they're doing in reality they should be doing, but they're not doing. They say that we're a guide to the blind. Just so you know, we're a guide to the blind. But they weren't a guide to the blind. There was inconsistency. In addition to being a guide to the blind, they were to be light to those who are in darkness. Again, being in darkness does not refer to physical darkness here, but to spiritual darkness. To be outside of a relationship with God is to be spiritually blind, is to be walking in darkness and not in light. Those who are without the knowledge of the law. God declared in Isaiah chapter 42, verse 6, that Israel, listen to this, was to be a light to the nations. That the way that God dealt with Israel as a people was to encourage and to enlighten other nations to desire a relationship with God. That was the hope, that they would be like a city set on a hill that couldn't be hidden and that people would see their good works and glorify their father who was in heaven. That was the goal. However, they failed to be that light. That is why when Jesus came, Jesus said, I'm the light of the world. And then he entrusted his disciples and said, you're the light of the world. Where Israel had failed to be the light, the church was now to go into the world under the guidance of the great commission and be a light to those who were in darkness. They claimed to be the light, but they lived in darkness. He also said they had this practice of being instructors of those who were foolish. To be foolish refers to those who had worldly wisdom. Those who sat of the men like Aristotle, Plato, Socrates, Greek philosophers, and assumed that their wisdom was all that they needed. They had this great intellectual mind, but although they professed to be wise, they were fools because they denied the existence of God. And yet Israel knew the existence of God firsthand. They were to be the instructors to those who were foolish, outside of an understanding of truth. They were supposed to be teaching the law, the wisdom of God to these foolish men. But sadly, they didn't. 
He also said that they were to be mature teachers to those who were infants or babes. They were falsely confident that they were teachers of the immature. The immature refers to spiritual infancy. Those who, again, lack the knowledge of God's word. It could have also referenced the generation of children that came from Israel who needed to be taught God's law. Deuteronomy chapter 6, Moses instructed them, listen, you need to take the truth of this word and you need to pass it on to successive generations. There needs to be verbal transference of the truth from generation to generation. You keep passing it on. You keep telling them what you know of me. You, you claim to be teachers and instructors and be those who are mature, instructing those who are immature. But again, you're not living up to the practice that you say you practice. There is an inconsistency there is a hypocrisy, there is only religion. And this is what the problem was. Paul hammers it right here. For all of their privileges as a nation, as a people, for all of the practices that they were to be engaged in as teachers, as a light, as a guide, for all of these things that they had, there was a problem. And this was it right here. You'll notice in verse 20 where Paul points out, and make a note of this, you have the form of knowledge and truth in the law. You have a form of it. The word form refers to an outward shape or appearance, like a silhouette. It's an outline or a shadow of something. In other words, they only had the outline of knowledge and truth. And as great as the outline or definition of the truth was, which the Jew possessed in the law, it was in reality ineffective so far as the practical authority of the law in the Jews' conduct was concerned. They had a form, but not the substance. They had the truth, but they did not apply it. They had a form of godliness, but they denied the power thereof. The things which the Jew boasted of, this is the problem. It didn't change their life. It didn't have any impact on them. It was simply pride of race and religion and knowledge without any corresponding moral transformation. You have it, but it hasn't done anything for you because you're the same. You possess it, but it hasn't impacted your life. Nothing, you're going on like business as usual. Like It makes no difference. You have, hey, we have God's law. Wonderful. That's great, but you don't live by God's law. We have God's word. We're the light to the blind, but although you're supposed to be the light to the blind, you're living in darkness. We're the instructors, but we don't do what we instruct people to do. That's inconsistent. That was hypocrisy. This is what Paul is driving home, that they were living according to this, according to this religious blindness. They taught others, but did not take those lessons to heart. They were hearers of the word, but they were not doers of the word. They based their security on their own religious privileges and practices and even procedures. In order to drive home this point even further, what Paul will do is he asks several self-evaluating questions. And the response to these self-evaluating questions will reveal where their heart really is. And so he asks these questions. If you look at verse 21, he's saying, you therefore, he's speaking to the religious 
individual who teach another. Do you not teach yourself? You who preach that a man should not steal, do you steal? You who say, don't commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who make your boast in the law, do you dishonor God through the breaking of the law? These are very searching questions, and they knew the answers to these questions. When he talks about you who teach others, do you not teach yourself? You who instruct others, do, do, you, not, do you not live according to what you teach? He's, he's basically saying, I can sum it up in this way. Do you practice what you preach? When I say it to you, I say it to myself. From where I stand, this is an ongoing thing in my life. It's very easy. I shouldn't say it's very easy. It's actually rather difficult. But it's easier, I'll put it to you that way, to say these things to instruct others than it is to do it yourself. And I'll tell you something, God holds me accountable. There's certain passages of Scripture that I'd like to skip over because I know that the Lord is going to allow me to embody this truth personally before I instruct other people. Oh, there's been plenty of times when I have been preaching from this place and I'm actually talking to myself. Hey, people, trust in the Lord. Do you trust the Lord, John? Are you trusting the Lord right now? Yes, Lord, I'm trusting you right now. I'm teaching myself. Do I live what I preach? Do you live what you preach? Do we just say it or do we actually live it? Jesus, again, publicly rebuked the religious leaders of his day. You remember in Matthew 23 what he said. Here's what he said to the scribes and Pharisees. And he was really instructing his disciples concerning them. He said, the scribes and the Pharisees, they sit in Moses' seat. That is the position that they're in. They instruct you what the law says. That's where they sit. But then he said this, therefore, whatever they tell you to observe, observe and do. But do not do according to their works, for they say and do not do. Hey, listen, what they're saying is right because it's God's word. You listen to God's word and you do what God's word says, but don't do it the way they do it because they say it, but they don't actually do what it is they say. And that is what Jesus was pointing out here in Matthew's gospel 23 and what Paul is pointing out right here in the text of Romans chapter 2. How about this? Do you steal? Do you commit adultery? Do, do you claim to be against idolatry, but yet you're an idolater? Paul then, having asked these self-evaluating questions that they knew the answer to, because here's the thing, we could point these same questions back to ourselves. You who point out that people should not be involved in relationships outside of their marriage. Are you involved in a relationship outside of your marriage? Are you texting some woman? Are you writing emails to some man? Are you engaged in, you know, secret meetings? What, what are you, that's inconsistent. You who say that those kids, man, they shouldn't be involved with that. You know, they should not be on their phones like that. That is not right. Are you, are you on your phone into pornography? I mean, the, there's an inconsistency here. It's easy to say it. It's quite another thing to actually do it and apply it. He lays out an indictment here. 
He drives home this point. In verse 24, look at the indictment. You boast in the law, but do you dishonor God by breaking the law? You boast in the law, but at the same time, you break the law that you boast in. And what happens is you're actually dishonoring God by doing that. You're dishonoring God by claiming to have his law, but then the life that you live denies the very law that you claim to uphold. Do you understand what he's saying? He's talking to people who are blinded by religion. And the result of their hypocrisy, he says in verse 24, he says here that the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, as it is written. In other words, the way that you're living causes those in the world to say, there's no way I want to be a Christian because there's really no difference between you and me, except for the fact that you go to church on Sunday and I sleep in. That is the difference right there. That is all that there is different about you and me. You cuss like everybody else. You drink like everybody else. You smoke like everybody else. You sleep around like everybody else. You pretend to be something that you're not. What is the difference between you and me? If there is no difference, then there's no difference. And so the non-believer, even the non-believer expects the Christian, do they not, to live at some particular standard. Now, maybe higher than what we're even capable of achieving. But the fact is, if we take the name Christian as our own, there is an expectation that we're going to live like Christians. And how many people have you come across that say, I'm not going to church. Why aren't you going to church? I know. I met a Christian guy. He came to my house, did some work, had a fish on his guard, and he ripped me off. And then said, God bless you when he took my money. I'm not going there. You know what I mean? I knew this lady, she said this and that, and she was a Christian, and this happened. And, and many times, you know, there's more to that story. Details that are left out. But the non-believer expects us to live according to the word that we uphold, and when we don't, or when we deny it by our life, they're immediately quick to say, why become a Christian? It hasn't done anything for you. What's different about your marriage than my marriage? Me and my wife, we scream at each other. So do you. I hear you. I'm your next door neighbor. What's the difference? You understand? There's an expectation of something different. And there should be a transformation. You remember when David sinned? He committed adultery with Bathsheba. And then he sought to cover it up, having commanded that her husband be killed in battle. And he went on hiding his sin like nothing had ever happened until his sin found him out. And his friend Nathan came to him and he said, David, there's a guy in your kingdom, told him a story, a fictitious story, but a story nonetheless. There's a guy in your kingdom. He had a neighbor and, and this neighbor had one little lamb that he loved. It was like a pet. It was like a family member. And yet he was a wealthy man. He had all kinds of flocks and sheep and, and he, had, he had a guest come to visit him and rather than use one of his own sheep out of the multitudes that he possessed, he went next door, took his neighbor's one lamb that he loved and he sacrificed it, killed it and ate it. And David said, the man that has done that is gonna die. Really, the, the proper response would be he needs to be restored, hundred, you know, so many things according to the Levitical law, given more to him, not, not be killed for taking a sheep, but restored. And then Nathan said those words that cut to the very heart of the king. He said, 
you're the man. I'm talking about you. And David knew his sin was found out and he repented. And Nathan said that he was forgiven. In fact, in 2 Samuel 12, it says this, Nathan said to David, the Lord has also taken away your sin. You shall not die. Verse 14, however, because of this deed, you have given occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme. This is what happens when we live under religious deception. We say Christian, but we don't live the Christian life. What happens? It gives the enemies of God just reason to blaspheme God, solidifies their position of indifference toward Christianity. The Jewish people, the religious individuals that Paul is addressing, they prided themselves, first of all, on the privileges they had as a people. Secondly, they prided themselves on the practices that they were involved with. But the third thing that they prided themselves in and that they felt gave them eternal security in addition to the first two was the procedure that they underwent. And here it is in verse 25. Here's the medical procedure. It says, for circumcision is indeed profitable. Now just mark that. When you see the word circumcision, he's referring to the Jewish individual. When you see the word uncircumcision, he's referring to the Gentile. Keep that in mind as we read these verses. It'll make a whole lot more sense. For circumcision is indeed profitable if you keep the law. But if you're a breaker of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. Therefore, if an uncircumcised man, speaking of a Gentile, keeps the righteous requirements of the law, will not his uncircumcision be counted as circumcision? And will not the physically uncircumcised, if he fulfills the law, judge you, who even with your written code and circumcision are a transgressor of the law? For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart in the spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is not from men, but from God. Understand, first of all, that the act of circumcision, the medical procedure, was given by God to the nation of Israel to be an outward physical sign of his covenant relationship with them. The first mention of it is there in the book of Genesis when God tells Abraham, who was the father of the Jewish nation, that he, as well as all of his household and all of his servants were to be circumcised. And then the custom from then on was to be performed on the eighth day after a child was born, a male child, on the eighth day, he was to undergo this procedure. The Hebrew people, the Jews, took great pride in this. In fact, it became for them a badge of spiritual and national superiority. It fostered a spirit uh, that made them exclusive from everybody else. And it got so bad that they would pray, a, the strict Jews would pray a prayer daily that said this, God, I thank you that I am not a woman, first of all. Sorry, ladies. Secondly, that I'm not a Samaritan, which were considered half-breeds. And thirdly, I thank you that I'm not a Gentile. This was their mentality. One of the things that they would say in a derogatory way to, the, to a Gentile was, you're uncircumcised. Remember when David confronted Goliath? He came down, heard what Goliath was saying. He said, what did this uncircumcised 
Philistines say? Oh, wow. I mean, this was something that was very serious. And so the Gentiles were regarded by the Jews as being uncircumcised, which was a term of disrespect implying that non-Jewish people were outside of the circle of God's love. That's how they began to view this. And it became emotionally charged. When you, get to the, when you get to the book of Acts and Gentiles are getting saved, Paul is planting churches among the Gentiles. There were people that were following right behind him who were Jewish. They were called the, he calls them the Judaizers. And they would come to the churches that he planted. These people were saved by grace through faith. They were excited about their relationship with the Lord, saved by Christ, and they would come in after Paul left and moved on, and they'd say, hey, listen, we heard that Paul was here, shared a few things with you about how to, how to be saved. I just want you to know he left out some stuff, some painful stuff, and if you truly want to be saved, if you truly want to know you're going to heaven, then you got to go through this procedure. I'm sure there's a lot of people that said, hey, Christianity, nope, I'm, I'm out. I'm not doing that. Are you crazy? I'm not gonna do that. They wanted me to go through this physical procedure. It was Jesus plus this and Jesus plus that that saved you. That's why Paul wrote so many of his epistles to counteract that lie. It's not Jesus plus anything. It's not a religious procedure that makes you righteous in the sight of God. Going into the waters of baptism this afternoon, that doesn't make you righteous in the sight of God. The blood of Christ makes you righteous in the sight of God. This is just an outward demonstration of something that's already happened on the inside. And so here, this is what Paul is addressing. They took pride in their practice, in their privilege, in their procedure. But it was never God's intention by instructing his people with this right or this procedure to become arrogant, to become isolated from the rest of the world, or to suppose that because they had gone through this procedure, that that meant they were saved. And that is why you find Paul saying, hey, it's more than something outward. We're talking about something inward here. We're talking about something on the inside. In the Old Testament, even the Lord made mention of this. If you go to Deuteronomy, for example, in Deuteronomy chapter 10, Moses exhorted the people and he said this in Deuteronomy chapter 10. He said, circumcise your hearts, your heart on the inside. And don't be stiff-necked or rebellious any longer. The prophet Jeremiah also exhorted the people, reprove them. In Jeremiah chapter 4 when he said, thus says the Lord to the men of Judah and Jerusalem, break up your fallow ground and don't sow among the thorns circumcise yourselves to the Lord and take away the foreskins of your heart. God was more concerned about what was going on the inside than what was going on on the outside. The religious procedure wasn't as important as the inward transformation. Because think about it. A person could accomplish this outward physical procedure on their own. God didn't have to do this this was something they did without God's help. And they were saying, I am righteous because I have done this. Then that means salvation wouldn't be by grace alone, would it? It means that you did something which earned your right for salvation. And this is the point I want you to understand. That is what Paul is doing here in Romans. What he is doing for, for the person who is religious, he's saying, this practice doesn't save you. This privilege could never save you. And by the way, this procedure also cannot save you. Only Christ can save you. 
He is uprooting this foundation that they had built on, which was faulty and ready to crumble. It had to be something supernatural. Let me explain it in this way. I think this will help you. If you think about this morning, the wedding band, the wedding band that you put on your finger when you get married, important, yes. It is an outward symbol, an outward symbol of your eternal fidelity with your spouse. If I could have the rings at this time, thank you very much. Now in a moment, I'm gonna give you this ring. And this ring speaks, you'll notice it has no beginning and no ending. It's a circle. It speaks of your eternal faithfulness to one another. And when you place this ring on her finger today, what you're going to be, when she looks down at that, at her finger in years to come, she's going to be reminded of the promises you made and the things that you said, and she's going to know it. So would you repeat after me, wear this ring, wear this ring. As a token of my love, as a token of my love. For with this ring, for with this ring, I thee wed, I thee wed, in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, Amen. And so for you too. I mean, and you go on, you you give them the rings. It's an outward symbol that is to reveal that you're going to be faithful to one another. However, it's not the most important part of the marriage relationship, is it? Because having a ring on your finger does not ensure faithfulness to your spouse. That's something that happens on the inside. This is an outward symbol of it but it happens on the inside. The outward act, in other words, the procedure of circumcision and the wearing of a wedding band have a lot in common. They're supposed to be outward symbols of one's inner conviction, but they are nothing more than an outward symbol if they don't make a difference in a person's life. And that is what the apostle is stressing here. It's profitable if you keep the law. But if you don't, if you don't obey God's word, what benefit is it to you? Listen, even the Gentile doesn't have to go through the outward procedure and he could keep the law. And then he's gonna judge you even though you've gone through the procedure and don't keep the law. Again, the emphasis that he is stressing is that nothing can save you apart from Christ. All of these privileges that they had as a nation, the grace of God being shown to them, the opportunity to have access to the word of God, to live in freedom, to be a light to the world. And yet what God had called them to do and what they were meant to be, they weren't. We can look at our own lives today, can't we? Here in this nation, God has shown us grace. The United States of America, he has shown us such grace, so much more than we could ever deserve. We have access, freedom to the word of God that people in other places would love to just have a page from this book to look at and read. And yet they're beaten and persecuted and imprisoned just for wanting a copy of this, just to want to read it and live according to it. And here we are with all of it at our fingertips. We've got the word of God. We've got, a, we've got churches that teach the Bible. We've got access to all of these things. And yet what good does any of it do if it doesn't change my life? 
If I'm just going through religious motions, if I'm just sitting in a seat, if I'm just toting this thing around, but it doesn't change my life, then what good is it done? Folks, it has to be more than an outward. It has to be something on the inside. And that is something that God does in me through his spirit. Not something I can accomplish. And here, if you could imagine in these first few chapters, what Paul is doing, he's painting a black backdrop. You ever notice that when you go to get a ring, it's always in, in a black setting? Why do they do that? Why is it you open it up and say, oh, because it, when it's in that kind of a setting, it makes it shine so brilliantly. You're like, wow, is that real? Because <laughs> it's so bright. That's what Paul's doing in these first few chapters. He's painting this, this black backdrop. This is me rolling, painting a black backdrop, all right? That's what it looks like. You're like, what is he doing? I'm painting. <laughs> Imagine it. Just a black wall. And then in a moment, the brightest, the most brilliant, the most beautiful colors are going to be placed in the form of the gospel. And it's overwhelming because what it does is it brings us, what he's doing is he's bringing us all to the same place that we cannot save ourselves. The church can't save you. Rituals can't save you. A denomination can't save you. I was always amazed in living in the Southeast when I would ask someone this question, are you a Christian? And often the response would be, I'm a Baptist. I'm sorry, I just was curious if, uh, are you a Christian? I'm a Methodist. What do, you, what, do you, what do you mean, my Christian? Okay. Are you a Christian? I'm Catholic. I'm Catholic. Are you a Christian? I go to Calvary Chapel, so I'm Capistrano, okay? <laughs> like that matters. You understand what I'm saying. It's got to be more than those things. I come to Christ with nothing. I've got nothing to add to this. I come broken, empty, a beggar. I have nothing to offer him. And I realize my own spiritual depravity and poverty. And I say, Jesus, save me. That's it. That's the only thing that saves me. Religion can blind you, not save you. And so many people today, they're very religious, but they're not necessarily redeemed because they're not trusting in the finished work of Christ. They're trusting in their own work or their own righteousness. And the Bible makes it clear that that's nothing more than filthy rags. But there is a righteousness that is provided through Christ that we can receive and be clothed in and be welcomed in and ushered into heaven as a result of that, the finished work of Jesus. May God help us to rest in Christ alone. Amen. Amen. Shall we pray together? Heavenly Father, as we close today, just reminded of, you reminded me of the lyrics of that old song, that old hymn. Nothing in my hands I bring, only to the cross I cling. 
Father, I pray if there are any here today who perhaps have been under that religious misconception of what they do or have done or where they've attended is their security. Lord, I pray that that would be stripped away today. And Lord, that you would allow your truth just to penetrate hearts today. Get beyond, Lord, the facade, the things that we put up, the scaffolding as it was, the the stage that we set, Lord, the curtain that we draw, but what's really behind that curtain and what's behind is reality, Lord. So Father, I pray that today your spirit would speak and convict and bring people out of darkness and into light. And if you're here this morning, as eyes are closed and heads are bowed, as we have done continuously through our time in Romans, if you'd say, that's me, Pastor John. I, I've been very religious, but I'm not redeemed. I haven't trusted in Christ. I've actually been trusting in myself. And I've always felt that if I was a good enough person, that that's all that was required. But the goodness that you speak of is your own goodness. It's not God's requirement. And so you fall miserably short, just like the rest of us. But if you'd say, I, I see the difference now and I want to receive Christ, I want to cling to him, then I'd love to pray for you today. If you just raise your hand up high, just acknowledging that and saying yes to Jesus. Religion can't save you, but a redeemer can. And Jesus is that redeemer. He lives. Anybody at all today, you can just cry out to him and say, Lord, that's me. Father, we thank you that you are a wonderful savior, a powerful redeemer. Thank you for the finished work. Lord, we rest in what Jesus has done. Lord, and may we not keep this truth to ourselves, but take this light and actually allow it to be seen, to share it with others. And may our lives reflect that light. Lord, forgive us when we have played the hypocrite. We've all done it, Lord. But we don't want to live that way. Continue your work in us, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Will you stand with us? As we dismiss today, maybe you need prayer. Maybe there's something right now in your life that you'd say, I would really like to pray with someone about this. I'd encourage you after the service to come up front. There'll be pastors and leaders available to pray with you for the needs that you have. If not, may the Lord bless you and keep you this week. May you continue to grow in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord. Listen, the best way to know God's will is to stay in God's word.
I encourage you to do that this week. What's God's will for my life? Pick up the book and ask him. He'll reveal it. He'll speak to you. And so we look forward to seeing you in the days ahead. For those that are getting baptized today, what a wonderful day to identify with Jesus in his death and in his resurrection. You're a new creation. What a joy. We look forward to that this afternoon. God bless you.